This is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings, and I'm your host, Greg Campion. On this show, we intend to dig below the headlines to find out what's really going on in public and private asset markets around the world. From fixed income and equities to alternatives and real estate, we'll be speaking with Bearings experts from across the globe to get a glimpse into where they're seeing risks and opportunities today. If you like the show and want to hear more from us, just search Bearings on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and click subscribe. Or visit us on bearings.com. That's B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. So on today's show, I spoke with Dr. Christopher Smart, head of macroeconomic and geopolitical research here at Bearings. Prior to joining the firm in 2018, Dr. Smart served in the Obama administration, first as Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, where he led the U.S. response to the European financial crisis, and then at the White House as Special Assistant to the President, where he was Principal Advisor on Trade, Investment, and a wide range of global economic issues. Before government service, Christopher spent much of his career managing emerging market investment strategies. So we spoke today about the 2020 U.S. presidential election. And while it seems early to be having this conversation, for all intents and purposes, the election has has actually kicked off. Um, one of the things I found most fascinating is just how many unknowns there still are about this election, from who the candidates are to even what the parties themselves stand for. And here's our conversation. All right, Christopher Smart, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. So we're going to talk about a very interesting topic today and a topic that I think is is very close to your heart and, and one that you spend a lot of time talking about and a big part of your career, and that's the current political uh, environment that we're facing today. What I'd like to do is start from a global perspective uh, and get your views there and then start to zero in down to what's going on specifically in the U.S. and talk a little bit about the 2020 election. So I'd like to get get a sense from you on what does this field of Democratic candidates look like? Could we see potential challengers to President Trump? Could we even see a third party candidate actually make a run of it for for real in this election? And then, of course, what are all the platforms of these candidates actually going to look like? And then finally, what I'd like to finish up on is talking about how can an investor actually navigate this, right? So with that as kind of an intro, um, what I'd like to do is turn it over to you and ask you a admittedly very broad question, uh, and that is, can you characterize the current political environment for us, starting from a global perspective, and maybe talk about the forces that are kind of driving that political environment today? Well, I think it's a good place to start. Obviously, these are very large questions with deep historical roots, and in our particular American political environment, highly charged and highly emotional. Sure. So I think it's very hard um, to talk through them sometimes in a, uh, in a dispassionate and analytical way. But um, let me give it my best shot. Great. I think um, what we have seen in the past few years uh, outside the United States, as well as inside the United States, obviously, is a rise of populism that we talk a lot about. Mm-hmm. And that is rooted in a lot of things, Um, much weaker labor unions than we've had historically, a rise of globalization so that traditional high-paid jobs in developed markets are facing competition from new low-wage economies around the world. And then now increasingly you have automation and, you know, people losing their jobs to robots, essentially. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, A lot of that may be exaggerated in some sense. The fears may be exaggerated, but it has clearly had an impact in incomes, in inequality around the world. Uh, In the last 35, 40 years, the top 20% of American households have seen their incomes almost double, whereas middle-income Americans have seen only a slight rise, if essentially flat, uh, over that period of time. So 
that obviously is one of the deeper undercurrents. And you see similar things going on to a lesser degree in Europe uh, and, and other parts of the world. What I think is ironic that it has now sort of surfaced uh, in full fury over the last few years is that it comes at a time when unemployment is improving. Sure. We're at 50-year lows in the United States. Mm -hmm. Wages mm -hmm. are actually rising a little bit now. Right. Uh, and so there is a little bit of a disconnect between that underlying anger, which has real roots over a longer period of time, with some of the current economic data. So I guess you could argue that no one has kind of tapped into these underlying forces probably more effectively, at least here in the U.S., than President Trump. The name Trump, there is a lot of emotion charged in that name. Very positive emotion on one side, very negative emotion on another side, right? But if we, if we try to look at it maybe a little bit more objectively and we take a step back and we say, okay, what if we look at this scenario without that name Trump and we say, what, what is actually going on here today? We've got a Republican incumbent president who will be seeking reelection. And we usually think about incumbents having a distinct advantage. We've got a president who's presiding over a period of quite healthy economic growth, presiding over a period to date, at least, of quite healthy capital markets, quite low unemployment, as you've just mentioned, um, and also a president who potentially will have a few foreign policy feathers in his cap heading into the uh, re-election. So if you take the name Trump out of that equation, that looks like a pretty good story for re-election, does it not? I think it's a really interesting thought exercise, and it's very useful as you look at the prospects for either party going forward. And I think you're right. It's a good point that there are the makings of a reasonable case for a Republican incumbent president to say, this is what I have done in my time in office. I think the issue, of course, is we'll see what happens a year from now. Sure. And of course, we've got a long time between now and then to see what happens to the economy, to see what happens to the stock market mm -hmm. in particular. Mm -hmm. He has tied his success in great measure to the level of the S&P 500. And of course, many of his supporters aren't really supporting him necessarily for what he has delivered as much as for his personality, right, for right. his style, for what he represents. And so, um, well, I think it's a useful thought exercise. It's an incomplete thought exercise because so much of what uh, is happening in our political system today is what has been delivered from a series of departures from previous Republican mm -hmm, uh, candidates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely would like to, to to get into that a little more. So we're sitting here recording this today in Barings Global Headquarters, which is in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. This city will be home to the 2020 Republican National Convention. The city actually was home to the 2012 Democratic National Convention. Usually when you think about these types of events, I don't want to undersell them, but they do tend to be more rubber stamping of candidates and all about the pomp and circumstance. Especially um, for an incumbent party. Absolutely. Could we see something more interesting this time around? Could there be any obvious contenders to challenge the president for that Republican nomination? There are a few who've already appeared. In fact, Governor Weld, former governor of Massachusetts, mm -hmm. has just announced his official candidacy to challenge uh, President Trump for the Republican nomination. There are, of course, others who look like they are making all the right moves to declare a candidacy. Another former Massachusetts governor, Mitt Romney, sure. we'll see whether he actually makes an appearance. Uh, former Ohio governor John Kasich mm -hmm. is making all the right speeches in all the right places. I think there will probably be a challenge within within the Republican Party. I think what is so difficult for them right now is that challenging an incumbent president in any party at any time is uh, a Herculean task. Mm -hmm. 
And this is a president who has really refashioned a lot of the Republican Party's ideology, a lot of its current record, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the argument to get voters to vote for it on on him and his new approach mm. and less on traditional Republican platforms of free trade, yep. deficits, less government mm -hmm, involvement mm -hmm. in economic decisions. But I think the party has really become the president's party and much less the party of Mitt Romney or yeah. John McCain, yeah. uh, let alone Bill Weld. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Just traditionally what you think of as a Republican, how Trump maybe has turned that on its head to some degree. And then maybe we can talk about what that means for the Democrats in terms of combating that strategy. Well, I think it's fascinating because I think if you go back in history, Republicans have not always been the party of free trade and low tariffs. For example, mm. in the late 18th century, early 20th century, they were much more protectionist for business and manufacturing interests. Uh, and the Democrats were the party that wanted to cut tariffs. Mm. Um, that's just one example. But it's not, you know, uh, unprecedented that our parties change and evolve and at one point or another flip sides mm -hmm. on various issues. Uh, what is interesting about this president is that other than maybe his continued sort of return to things like deregulation and lower taxes, much of his economic policy is a departure from the Reagan smaller government, uh, less government intrusion in economic decisions. This is a president who is, you know, for tariffs. Mm -hmm. This is a president who really seems to be less concerned with balancing the budget. Right. Um, this is a president who is talking more about drug price control, mm -hmm. about encouraging rising minimum wages. Sure. Yep. Uh, and so it's, if anything, a president who sees a greater role for the government in a lot of economic decisions uh, along the way. And, you know, there are people who have talked about the Republican Party sort of splitting in two. It's just very hard to see that traditional set of Republicans going their own way right now. So we've got essentially a, a president who, to some degree, has has flipped the script on the Democrats, right? And some of the issues that you mentioned around tariffs, around taxes, around things like minimum wage, um, maybe taking a stance that would not be considered traditionally Republican. If you're a Democratic candidate looking to pose a challenge in 2020, what does that mean for your platform and I guess, what are the early indications that we're starting to see from those who have announced already? Well, I think it's very hard if you are a Democratic challenger, first of all, because there are 19 others uh, right. or more, and you need to find shelf space sure. to some extent. The second thing is because the environment is so emotionally charged right now, it is very easy to tap into anger towards the president or frustration about the president mm -hmm. uh, and his policies or his style to tap into the wild cards like the Mueller investigation, mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. other congressional investigations that come out, and set that aside almost like you did earlier in our conversation and say, look, this is a, a candidate that will go with a certain record to the people, mm -hmm. and how do we present an alternative? Yep. What is wrong with his record, and how do we, how do we adjust for that? Um, if anything, four years ago, I guess it was only two years ago right now, Hillary Clinton, for all of her strengths and weaknesses, mm -hmm. was very much an incremental candidate. Right. Democrats had learned in Washington, certainly that was the experience of President Obama, that you can't get big things done in Washington. And so if you go to the people and say, I'm going to deliver this huge makeover, mm -hmm. you were just asking for trouble. Right, right. It was unrealistic. It wasn't going to happen. Uh, I think Democrats are now looking at the Trump script and saying, you know what? 
you've got to swing for the fences mm-hmm. and you've got to say, I'm going to deliver something dramatically different right. and dramatically eye-catching. When I think of that, I immediately think Bernie Sanders, I think Elizabeth Warren, I think some of the candidates who would be considered more at the left side of that spectrum. But what are you seeing there so far? Well, I think broadly speaking, you're going to see a party that will be moving to the left, just as I think President Trump has dragged the Republican Party to the left, as Mm -hmm. we've just discussed. So you have a party that will look for solutions that involve more government um, if not over uh, intervention, but at least oversight or involvement with sure. broad yep. economic decisions. I think if you go across the spectrum, a lot of the more extreme ideas are associated with, with Bernie Sanders, who was very successful mm-hmm. last time around. Yep. We tend to forget because he lost, but he came very close. Sure. Yeah. He has uh, raised a great deal of money so far right now. Elizabeth Warren, I think, has some of these very same echoes in her ideas, but I would argue, has a much more sophisticated understanding of capital markets, of corporate law, of how these systems work and Mm -hmm. how markets can work for the good, as well as, from her point of view, need more regulation and more control. So one of the early strategies that we've seen from President Trump, the Republican Party overall, and as they start to think about the 2020 re-election, and I think this was even mentioned in the State of the Union address, is basically painting the Democratic side as socialists. And I think a lot of us grew up thinking socialism was a bad word. Can you talk a little bit about socialism and how that relates or doesn't relate to the Democratic Party today? Well, it's a very interesting strategy, I think, that the president is starting to test out with his constituents. What is striking is that the recent Gallup polls show that younger people under 30 in particular have had a declining sense of confidence in the word capitalism Mm. and a rising sense of confidence in the word socialism. Now, what they mean by socialism is open to broad interpretation, but I think it's broadly the sense that big corporations are making too much money and middle-class Americans are not sharing in that prosperity. That's probably where the logic goes in that regard. I think what is interesting is among the Democrats, there is great unity and alignment on social issues, whether it is abortion rights, immigration, gun control. They all agree Uh, broadly Mm -hmm. on those things. Mm -hmm. And where you look across the field, there's much more differentiation on economic issues. And you go from an extreme, I think, of Bernie Sanders to much more moderate mainstream candidates like Amy Klobuchar and perhaps Joe Biden. And that's where they're sorting out how they can appeal to their base through either revolution uh, disruption. I mm-hmm, think mm-hmm. even Senator Sanders doesn't want people to go to the streets with pitchforks, but I think <laughs> he wants to really disrupt the system. Uh, two more moderate proposals that you get on changing our tax code. Maybe it's not a new Green Deal mm-hmm. in you know word for word or letter for letter, but something that embodies more incentives for clean energy and clean technologies and fewer incentives for carbon and polluting industries. So I think that's what will be sorted out in the in the months ahead uh, as they Democrats find a candidate they think can be a viable competitor against this charge of socialism. One of the big questions I have is, can the same Democratic candidate win the primary, but also be an effective competitor in the general election? I think within the Democratic Party, there is a great deal of concern that 
the candidate that is chosen be a candidate who can win. So you will see, I think, more moderate candidates probably jumping into the race. Mm -hmm. Governor Hickenlooper, Vice President Biden, Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota, Mm -hmm. I think sort of they come at things from a more moderate centrist perspective. Although to get their base mobilized and activated, Mm -hmm. they'll come up with some, you know, bigger showcase billboard ideas as well to drive their campaigns. So if you look at some of those candidates on the Democratic side, I mean, who jumps out at you as potentially being able to really get people excited enough to, you know, um, make a real challenge to a president who's got a really enthusiastic base? That's the hardest thing for an analyst to try and guess. Yep. Uh, because you never know who will catch fire. You'll never know who will collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's a long history of front runners that the media gets very excited about yeah. who just flatline in the early polls. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that when I think lightning in a bottle, the one who jumps out to me most recently, uh, even though he lost his race, would be Beto O'Rourke. Um, do you think he could be a a legitimate contender. Well, he'll certainly be a legitimate contender. He raised a lot of money in his race. I think he's a very well-spoken candidate who gets a lot of people excited. Of course, his his resume is shorter than a lot of the competitors mm-hmm. that he's up against, but you know, that will be part of the debate. You know, people have won with shorter resumes and people have lost with longer resumes. Sure. And then how about just looking at the potential for a third-party candidate, right? So I think the conventional wisdom on third-party candidates has been they pretty much act as spoilers, right? Um, if they have any level of success, I think that highest level of success we've seen in modern history anyways would would have been Ross Perot's close to 19% of the um, popular vote in 1992. Um, and you can argue that he helped uh, to unseat a uh, Republican incumbent president in George H.W. Bush and help President Clinton uh, get into office there. Um, but we haven't seen anyone match that since. I know that others like Mike Bloomberg have been doing the math for years and concluding maybe it's not a viable path. Um, do you think that changes this time around? And and I guess maybe does that depend on where the Democrats end up in terms of the candidate they nominate? Well, as I sip my coffee here this morning, I have to mention Howard Schultz, who came on to people's consciousness by saying he's considering a third-party run Mm -hmm. and was very vehemently slapped down by mainstream Democrats saying you're going to sort of tilt the race to to President Trump if you get in because you'll take votes away from Democrats rather than taking them away from Republicans. And I think just to go back in more recent history, uh, many people still blame Ralph Nader even with 3% for having taken votes away from Al Gore Mm -hmm. against George W. Bush. I think it's very hard for a third-party candidate to take root for all of the reasons that you mentioned, the political apparatus, the fundraising apparatus, the media focus on two parties is very set in its ways and very hard to break through. Having said that, however, the conventional wisdom really just doesn't really seem to apply anymore. Mm -hmm. It is possible to imagine a democratic process that produces a candidate that is perceived to be too far to the left, unelectable for a variety of reasons, Mm -hmm. wrong state, wrong gender, wrong background, Mm -hmm. not enough experience. And within that framework, a centrist feeling that this is a chance to make a difference, Mm -hmm. to change that dynamic. Mm -hmm. And given emotions on both sides, I think there are a lot of Republicans who voted for President Trump this time around who as of today, they may change their minds, but as of today, 
are looking for an excuse to vote for somebody else. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so a centrist candidate becomes very attractive to a large number of Republicans. Mm -hmm. But uh, and that would create potential for that happening. But as I say, I still think that that's a certainly a less than 50-50 chance. Yeah. Um, I haven't asked you at all about the Mueller investigation, which is this huge unknown, obviously, that could shake up pretty much everything that we've talked about here today. I'm not going to ask you to predict what the outcome of that investigation is and all the implications and all that. But if you're an investor today and you're trying to make sense of some of the headlines coming through and you're hearing about the investigation finishing up and, you know, potentially there being some news flow on this front, how do you how do you even start to think about that or factor that into the equation? I think it's very hard to think about how to factor it in because I think there's going to be a lot of attention on his findings and his report, uh, whether the report is released or not, which I think the attorney general gets to decide, although I think it's hard to imagine the attorney general not releasing most of the report Mm -hmm. or even what is not released, not leaking out. So Mm -hmm. we'll find out more or less what he knows. Um, But I think what's a mistake is to think that that's the end of it because it's really just the beginning. Almost in any scenario right now, the Democrats will have congressional investigations Uh, In the House, they're already underway across Mm -hmm. a variety of fields. Uh, You have federal investigators uh, in the Southern District of Manhattan investigating certain parts of the president's tax dealings, that sort of thing. So I think that is, at this stage today, knowing what we know, likely to be very noisy background noise Mm -hmm. to the scenarios we've just discussed. Mm -hmm. At what point something could be so substantive and shocking as to make it more than background Mm -hmm. noise and lead to impeachment, lead to something that looks like the president being removed from office. I think that's very hard to imagine Mm -hmm. right now. But we've, of course, seen it before in our history. And depending on what comes out, uh, could see it again. So in thinking about how do you make sense of all this from an investor's standpoint, right? And thinking about the start of our discussion, we were talking about the rise of populism, issues around income inequality, that sort of thing, and that kind of being a real undercurrent behind the, the current political environment. We've got a long way to go here. We're talking about the 2020 election. We're going to be talking about it for the next year and a half, right? Um, if you're an investor today and you want to stay abreast of what's going on, but you're not going to be in the weeds on every single thing, I mean, what what are a few kind of guideposts to watch for or what are what are a few of the things that I guess you're going to be keeping an eye on to kind of tell you which direction things may go in one way or another? Well, if you're an investor trying to keep tabs of what's going on, you should faithfully be listening to the Streaming Income podcast. <laughs> and I think more uh, important, if you're an investor, you should be looking at the potential returns from your investments and Currently, our economy in the United States, I think, is quite healthy. The consumer is very strong. The markets have sold off a little bit, bounced back a little bit. But the underlying economic data is quite healthy, and that's going to drive returns, I think, more than anything else at this stage. At some point next year, we'll have a Democratic candidate. We'll know what the odds are of that person winning or not. And then even then, the markets will sort of say, well, this is the candidate's platform. We'll he or she be able to enact it into law? And then how will that impact my profit line, my returns to investors? Mm -hmm. So I think we're a long way from the market 
really reacting to the political news more than the economic news. Right. Having said that, if there is a disruption, if suddenly there is a real chance the president is replaced, that will be very serious noise. Although, again, that will settle down and we'll go back to looking at the economic mm -hmm, returns. Mm -hmm. I think the longer-term issue, though, is, is this an economy that is likely to be less regulated or more regulated? And I think I go back to the point I tried to make earlier. I think it's hard to imagine a point at which businesses, large businesses in particular, will face lower taxes or less government management mm -hmm, of what they do. Mm -hmm. I think certainly a Democratic candidate will focus on raising revenues from corporations. I think they will also focus on things like climate change, on things like health care, on things like drug prices. And those, I think, are things where industry by industry, stock by stock, investors have to start paying attention mm -hmm, to that. Mm -hmm. Again, that's not a story for this year or even next year, but maybe late next year. Mm -hmm. Um, when we start getting closer to an actual vote. I'll say on the other side, if President Trump wins a re-election, a lot of what he has been talking about and a lot of what he would like to get enacted mm -hmm. is also not necessarily on the top of most Fortune 500 wish lists mm -hmm. because it does involve continuing trade friction with major trading partners. It does involve more sort of government kind of populist responses on drug prices, again, uh, raising minimum wages mm -hmm, and other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I would say there are certainly no shortage of factors to consider. I think it's been great to, to hear the way you're thinking about this today. I think it would be great to continue to hear this. So I'd love to have you back as we move towards the 2020 election and continue to get your thoughts on how the different pools of candidates are actually playing out, what platforms are sort of rising above the others, and what does that ultimately mean for, for markets. So um, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. I would say to our listeners, if you'd like to stay up to date on Christopher's latest thoughts, I would follow him on Twitter at CSmart, where he is sharing his latest thoughts on all things macro, geopolitical, and even throwing in a little bit of Boston Red Sox commentary as well. So Christopher, thank you so much for joining me today. They're going to repeat this year as a prediction. I, I totally agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to hear more from the team here at Bearings, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and search Bearings or find us on the web at bearings.com. That's B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. Thanks again.